to do this thing a long time ago when I was a college pastor called a skeptics ball. And a skeptics ball was where I would basically just take any and all questions and just interact about those questions, theology, philosophy, the Bible, religion, Christianity, other religions, uh, no questions off limits. And basically, it's just a question. We see if we can answer it. I, I reserve the right to not answer it. Um, but we're going to do that this morning. So there's a mic on both, both sides, and you can line up. And the whole time this morning is just going to be um, responsive to questions that you guys surface. Hopefully some of them tie into the, the hiddenness of God um, somehow. But it doesn't have to be about that. It can be about anything. So what I'd like you to do right now is if you've got a question about anything, you can start lining up at the mics. I need you to work with me on this because I don't have anyone planted in the audience um, one, because I just decided to do that this, this morning, and two, because that would be lame if I actually had plants in the audience, you know. Wouldn't really be authentic, would it? Um, so we're going to do that. So I don't have any music behind me, drum roll, but we're just going to talk about the faith, the questions that you have, uh, the things you've always wondered, the things that frustrate you, the things that bother you, um, the topics that seem to never get talked about in church. And so um, you can just line up at the mics, and we're going to go from there. And you can just stare at me until uh, we get there. Guy Gleason, thank you for helping me out. <laughs> Didn't want you to suffer up there. <laughs> if I understand it right, all things were created by God, and God is good. How did evil come to be? If Guy understands it right, um, all things were created by God, and God is good, so... Whereby did uh, evil come? I'll try and do it simply. I mean, that's a, that's a thorny one, but there's different views of evil out there. Uh, Augustine had a view of it that I think is pretty insightful, and, and he says um, that evil is in some sense parasitic on good. It, it doesn't stand on its own two feet. It's a defamation of good. So if I created a piece of artwork here, um, it's not that evil has its own existence over here. Evil is this piece of artwork um, graffitied, destroyed, um, hurt, damaged, not the way it's supposed to be. So the idea is that when God created man, he created us with free will, the ability to choose and to obey and to respond. And when, when we fell, when mankind fell with Adam, with Eve, and then subsequently um, as we all choose to sin, it's a perversion of the, the will that God gave us to where we don't live out the goodness that he, he desired for us to have, the way he scripted it out. And when we don't live that out, it's, it's a perversion of, of the good. It's, it's parasitic on the good. It's evil. And so um, evil kind of comes about by not choosing the good. Does that make sense? Um, I'll leave it there for now just because we could go 20 minutes on that one. But I think that we, let me just finish by saying this. We look at the world and evil differently than people used to look at the world and evil. Uh, we look at the world and evil and we remove ourselves from the equation and we see evil going on and we immediately blame God and say, how can you allow this evil to be going on? It's so unjust, it's so horrible. Um, there's something wrong with you, God. And that comes largely from our victim complex that we've kind of nurtured and grown in America. Um, the way people used to deal with these things, Daniel's a perfect example in the Bible, but Daniel would go uh, in captivity. God has carted off his people into captivity as a form of punishment. Daniel's this guy, this upstanding kid that grows up and kind of does everything that's right, doesn't allow himself to kind of get kind of perverted or, or anything. He just toes the line. And when he prays and says, God, forgive us for our iniquities, he, he talks in the, he's not forgive them for their iniquities, and it's not forgive me, it's forgive us. Um, we as people have chosen to walk away from you. We as your people have chosen to sin. And he takes ownership of that. It's a real humble thing where he, he just says, it's us that do this. Uh, the, the Puritans were, were big on this, and I mean, they were always coming back and looking at themselves and saying, I, we are the problem in this world that creates evil, that creates conflict, that creates all these situations that, 
with, with suffering, and they would repent, continually repent of that, and say, God, if you don't come and fix us, then these problems, these instantiations of evil will not go away. Um, so I think part of our problem, why evil really frustrates us so much today, is we, we see it as God's problem, not our problem. Does that make sense? And I think we kind of have to return a little bit to, and I'm not saying this is where you're going with the question, but I think as a, as a community of believers, as the church, we have to remember what um, humility is and come back to kind of a rich theology of repentance. Because if we don't begin with, you know what, um, I'm broken, something wrong with me, I don't do all the things that I, I wish I would do, and I do things that I wish I wouldn't do, like there's something seriously defective in me, and it's the same thing that's def- defective with people in Africa or here or there or wherever. And when we realize that we're a part of this all, um, evil still really bothers us, but we're looking for God to help solve the problem, not God, you know, you're responsible for the problem kind of a thing. Um, let me tag one more thing on that. It's, I had a, I, I emailed someone this week to get together for lunch, haven't heard back from him, and I'm assuming that I'm in this, hopefully I'm in a spam filter, <laughs> and not that he's just ignoring me, but it's someone I got sideways with uh, about four years ago, and I think I had every reason to get sideways with this individual. Uh, felt like I was completely justified in being sideways, that this person was treating me in a certain way, treating my family, treating this church uh, plant in a certain way. Got sideways with this individual, um, was completely justified in it. But as I was thinking through reality this week, uh, I started thinking about Rwanda. And you guys have seen Hotel Rwanda. You know about the genocide that went on there, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Um, and the Hutus killed 800,000 Tutsis in a matter of a couple months. You know, here's the interesting thing that nobody ever talks about. Rwanda was the most Christian African nation when that happened. Um, Up until then, missions, periodicals, and magazines and stuff would talk about Rwanda as the crown jewel of Christian missions. It's like, you know, look at this. It's like almost 90% Christian. Look at this success. And then all of a sudden this genocide happens, and you hear stories about pastors um, locking the doors and burning churches and and Christian deacons and, and things like this handing machetes to their five- and six-year-old kids so that they could take part in killing other children of a different tribe. I mean, it's just mind-boggling, right? This is a Christian nation, and we look at that, and now you know all these efforts are going in there, Christians from America trying to help with this and saying, we need reconciliation. If there's not reconciliation first, then nothing can come out of it. It's got to it's, it's be forgiveness and healing and reconciliation. And I started thinking about it, and I'm like, there's no difference between me um, not pursuing reconciliation with this brother in the Lord that I got sideways with and someone who was a Tootsie who had their whole family killed um, not being willing to, you know, how much more should I, with my little petty grievance, be willing to, to heal that? Does that make sense? Like, if we expect people in a country like that to forgive murder and the loss of their family and the fact that they're orphaned because of these things. And and the whole point of it is we don't critically analyze ourselves enough to realize that we share in this thing called sin and evil and self-centeredness and the deficiency of good, taking what God designed and marring it. I think the more we are willing to repent or humble ourselves... Maybe things can change a bit. Scott. Oh, uh, uh, Darcy and I were talking uh, just over this weekend at the coast, and just one of the things that we started talking about is just Jesus' life when he started his, his mission and stuff is why was he not necessarily clear with everyone? Like, why do you think he actually chose to keep himself hidden more? You know, answering a question with a question or, or even maybe going more to parables, like to separate the crowd maybe a little bit, just why was he not more direct about who he was? Um, Jesus talked in riddles and it's actually a, an idea, this whole idea, hiddenness of God kind of thing. Um, if, if God really is a hidden God and we shouldn't be surprised by, in some sense, the hiddenness of God, the unknowability of God, the incomprehensibility of God, um, we see that echoed with Jesus and how he comes and he talks in riddles. 
he did it largely in fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah is a big, um, a big one for prophesying how Jesus was going to speak. And though they had eyes and though they had ears, people would not, in some sense, comprehend what he was saying. They wouldn't have the paradigm to understand um, his message or, or who he was or what he was trying to say. Now, why, why is that? I think there's something that's hard for us to understand in America as Christians because we've, we've been the dominant cultural thing for a long time. Within America, our religion, our faith, Christianity, has been the dominant thing. And what God was doing with his people or has been doing with his people since the beginning almost is something that never really was dominant. He chose a small nation, uh, Israel, kind of in the backwoods and, and all this other stuff, and and he would continually kind of prune that down, said, I didn't choose you because of your size, or your numbers. Like, I really want a certain kind of heart here. And he'd kind of continually prune down. Um, Gideon's a good example of God saying, when I do something, I want people to know that it's me doing it. You're going to go up against an army of thousands. Um, You've got to keep pruning it down until it's just small enough that it looks ridiculous, and then it's okay to do it, and I'm going to get the glory kind of thing. Um, we think Christianity, if it's true, ought to be the, the dominant animal. God created it to be the parasite. I think it's, that really offends our sensibilities. I think what's happening, I think Bend is kind of funny, or the Northwest is kind of funny, because Christians here realize, in some sense, we've lost the cultural wars. You know, we've been fighting for however long these cultural wars in the South. I went to college at Clemson in South Carolina. They very much think those wars are still going on. Here it's like, no, we lost that 20 years ago. We can get on with building relationships with people and trying to share about our faith. You know, we can kind of put that aside and just do what we were called to do, love people and kind of be subversive that way. But if Christianity is the dominant thing, we expect it to be clear and we expect it to be, you know, every person on our block, they're an idiot if they don't understand this. And, and don't they realize, and didn't their grandma teach them, and didn't this and didn't that? Um, so I think, I think really the irony of, of that question is we have a perception that if it's true, it would be dominant. And I think what we see from God is um, he chooses to always make it the minority truth, not the majority truth. Um, he, he usually subversively picks a person, a prophet, a small group, a small tribe, a small whatever, and he subversively, relationally works through that group to infect broader groups um, and it begins with heart change. So I think what, what we see with Jesus is he's saying, I don't care, you know, in some sense my message isn't for the masses. It's for those that God's going to bring around me that are going to like get it down here. He's going to open their eyes. Their heart's going to change. And then through them, it's going to kind of spread. The other thing is, and this is really, again, humbling, it's a slippery slope thing. If God's going to be clear and clear is a value, well then, the more clear, the more valuable, the more clear, the more valuable, the more clear, the more valuable, and eventually he's just going to be blatantly clear and write it on the sky, which is, I think, what everyone really wants. Why doesn't God write it on the sky like that, you know, airplane graffiti art? You know what I'm talking about? Um, if God doesn't want to write it on the sky and be absolutely clear, well then it's over here, and it's like he has to be just clear enough that a viral movement starts. So either he's going to do it himself, and we're over here, or he's going to do just enough that we can get it, or a lot of us can get it, or some of us can get it, to, to flip it over, and then virally it goes from there. Okay? I mean, it's, it's really either or. And what God has chosen to do with humanity and reclaiming it and reconciliation, Paul talks about we've been given, it's been handed to us, uh, bestowed to us, this ministry of reconciliation. We've been given the honor, the, the stewardship to go out and, and reach people with the gospel, with the grace, with the love of Jesus Christ. So what, what God has done is not made it abundantly clear. He's made it clear enough so that we can, can accept, be changed, and then be a part of it. And the humbling part of that is just that God works through us, not over us. I mean, I still think he works over us, but he involves us because he's a relational God. He doesn't set all of humanity aside and said, let me just take it on myself. I'm going to do it all. Um, he wants the co-laboring. Does that make sense? He wants the, 
the fellowship of working alongside us because then we come to depend on him. We get to experience his power working through us and doing mighty things. It's about bringing us all together into unity. And if he just did our math homework for us and didn't, like, coach us through it, uh, we would never grow, we would never change. Does that make sense? So God leaves to us his ministry, and he makes it just clear enough that we can actually accept it. But the other option really would be if clarity was the value, God could go all the way and just write it on the sky, but it would be, it'd be done right there. There wouldn't be any wrestling. There wouldn't be any work for us. So I think that's one of the reasons, too. Sorry if that's all over the map. Hi, I'm Molly. This is only my fourth time here, so I don't know a lot of you yet, but my question has a lot to do with what you were just talking about. Um, how can we share our own unique experience or our own witness with others without coming across as judgmental? I think, uh, okay, so the question is, there's this, and certainly today, because there's kind of a hostility to what's called proselytizing, um, proselytizing is taking your faith and kind of trying to, you know, tattoo it onto somebody else. And there's a real backlash against that, and, and largely due to the fact that evangelicalism for a long time kind of ramped up evangelism to such a high degree that we began to do some things that were, um, I'll just say, awkward. I have a book called The Gospel Blimp. My friend Mike Saba gave it to me, and it was, you know, it's literally like, I think, 30, 40 years old, but... This guy writes this parody about the gospel blimp, and, and people get so obsessed with the 8 billion, you know, unreached people kind of thing. It's more people than are in the world, but I think that was what it said on the book. But like 8 billion unreached people, and this guy starts trying to mechanize all these ways to like communicate and evangelize to people, and eventually gets this gospel blimp, you know, that's, you know, throwing out all these leaflets. But the guy that's writing the book uses it as a, a parody to show you that when we try to mechanize the gospel and take the relational side out of it, it really begins to destroy um, what's really going on. And it has an adverse effect on people. It's not what God designed, and the way it really comes across to people is not something that wins them over to the Lord. And so he was trying to argue for, hey, we need to step back and really think through evangelism. It's not that God didn't call us to do it, but that he called us to do it in a certain way mainly the way Jesus did it. And Jesus came, it's called the incarnation. He took on flesh is what that means. He went and planted himself in an area, took on what was unique, the unique characteristics of that area, became a human, and loved his way into people's lives and educated and taught them truth. And from there, um, it kind of goes. So if we're going to do evangelism without offending people, we kind of have to live out that incarnation, which is you're planted in Bend. You might be planted as a medical doctor, planted as a lawyer, planted as a mechanic. You, you get planted within a subculture, within an environment, and you take on the characteristics of that environment, and then in that subculture, you live out a life of love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance and try to model and teach to other people what it really looks like to have this relationship with God. And through that relational process, they come to ask questions, to be open to hearing, and that's kind of the key. Um, if people aren't open, yet you push, push further than what they're open to, they push back harder. Does that make sense? And instead of having a viewpoint, and I don't know where Molly sat, so I can't look at you, but there you are. Instead of having wisdom in this whole matter of saying, re really starts with... Um, getting people open to hearing what we have to say, respect, credibility. Uh, we just jumped past that and said, no, they need to hear the gospel. We need to preach it. They get a choice at that moment to either accept or reject. And if they reject, uh, I was going to say screw them, screw them, and, uh, and I'll move on to the next person and give that person a chance to accept or reject. And, and I'm doing my duty, but there's really no care and concern for, for the psychological states or the humanity of that person. And if we really love somebody, say you've got somebody that's uh, in alcoholism, an eating disorder, um, something that's destructive, a destructive behavior, you care about that person. You don't care about being right. And so you think through with that person, how do I get into their life and make them open up to the 
to what I have to share um, that hopefully has to deal with their situation. Um, because I care. And if they don't listen to me, it's like my words are dead. So I, I need to get in there and, and have a relationship and love on them so that they'll listen and they'll care. It's not just about me preaching and being right. And so if we really love people that don't share the same viewpoint as us, um, we affirm them, we love them, we build relationships, and, and when they're open to what we have to say, we share. C.S. Lewis was great at this. Uh, in one of his letters, um, he writes, this, this, a guy that's a Hindu talks to him, and, and Lewis praises, he goes, I love Hindus, I think it's a great, uh, great people. They're a great people group, and they have all these great characteristics. And he says, but my, my one question with, he calls them Indians, my one question with Indians is, you know, what can they say is false? And so he affirms the people, but then he says, but there's a problem with the worldview here, but he does it in the form of a question. There's something inconsistent. They, they don't have any kind of um, law of non-contradiction, so they can just accept everything, but not everything can be true if they have mutually exclusive claims within them. Does that make sense? I, I can get into that a little bit more if there's a question for it, but Lewis was great at doing that. Love the person, build rapport with the person, and then hopefully be able to share. I think real quickly on the back end of that, Spiritual gifts studies would show whatever it's worth that literally about 10% of any group of Christians has any one gift. You know, the gift of mercy. I don't have it, you know. 10% of you guys do. Um, the gift of, like, you know, administration, the gift of leadership, the gift of different things. Well, evangelism is a gift like those. And so literally, you know, 10% of you probably have that gift, and you know that you have that gift, and other people know that you have that gift. What was done with evangelicalism in the last 50 years was a guilt complex that was put on 100% of Christians that if you weren't preaching at your neighbors week in and week out, you're a bad Christian. And one of the things I, I see in the New Testament with the woman at the well, she doesn't know anything about Jesus. She's just like, wow, this guy's legit. She runs back into town and goes, I don't know anything about this guy, but he's pretty legit. You should come listen to him. And she doesn't preach at him. She's like, you come listen to him. You know, I'm just inviting you. I come listen to him. And, and the, the church in Jerusalem after Jesus left grew to thousands of people. It was like the first mega church. And how did that happen? Because not everybody knew what to teach or what to say or how to evangelize. They were coming and it says that they were telling people, you need to come hear what these guys are saying at the temple courts. You know, the apostles are preaching. They're doing it. And you need to come be exposed to what they're saying. Just come and listen. And churches, I think, need to be a place where you can go to your neighbor and say, man, I don't even know how to explain this to you. <laughs> That's just not my gift. But you really ought to come listen. Or I've got a friend that you really should go talk to. Or, and we've got to be able to empower people and say, hey, it's okay to just introduce people if that's not your gift. Um, and that's unpretentious, and it's humble, and, uh, and I think that's winsome, ultimately. But it's logical, too. So I think there's just some things in the last 50 years that have created a climate where we've overdone it in preaching. I think churches have overdone it in the pressure we've put on people. And we're seeing a real resistance, so I think even more so now, we really need to be careful with how we talk to people. And we need to do it in such a way that wins respect, um, not offends them. Jesus, in some sense, is offensive. Um, but we are not supposed to be offensive. I heard a story of a Christian college gal that was telling... Um, her pastor, you know, everyone in my class is annoyed with me because I'm a Christian. And the guy was telling the story, and he's like, well, they're not annoyed with you because you're a Christian. They're annoyed with you because you're annoying. Because, um, you know, she was just abrasive, and her personality was annoying. And so I think we need to be able to be a little more self-critical. And, um, yeah, let the stumbling block be what the stumbling block is supposed to be, but we ourselves are filled with grace and we season our speech with salt. We season it um, because we care about the people and we don't care as much about being right. I don't know who's next. Go ahead, Mark. I'll repeat it if it's not working.
Yeah, uh, I'll answer it this way. So the question really has to do with the hiddenness of God, specifically culturally to America, and then what that has to say with other nations. And I think the answer with America kind of surfaces the why it looks different in other nations. And this really hits, I think, at the heart of this whole hiddenness of God issue. Um, first thing I'd say is, is simply this. We, we've created, I mean, hear me now, because this is so, so very important. We've created a view of God that is our creation of God. And when what we've created or packaged doesn't work, okay, uh, it, it seems defective. And it leads people either to have a mediocre faith or just to pitch their faith altogether. Why, why bother with this if it's defective? So the idea is if a kid has a toy and the toy is supposed to do all this cool robotic stuff, and it's like a dud of a toy. It's like, you know, throw it away or I'll take it back to the store. It doesn't work. It's broke. Um, I don't want it. We've created an image of God in America that's not accurate. So people take this view of God that's been given to them, very Americanized view. I'll get to that in a second. And it doesn't then fit their experience. And so it, it creates a confusion or a disappointment with God that leads to them throwing God away. It doesn't work. Okay? It's not what it promised to deliver. If you've got, you got a Bible, you can turn here with me real quick. I was in Lamentations this week. It's really, really fascinating to me, but Lamentations, um, I think it was 410. <laughs> it's not going to make any sense, but you know, I'll, I'll explain why it makes sense. Lamentations 410. This is Jeremiah, really, Jeremiah the prophet, just being like, whoa, God, man, it's some really messed up stuff going on. He's just crying it out to God. And so Lamentations 4.10, um, listen to what it says here. With their own hands, compassionate women have cooked their own children, who became their food when my people were destroyed. The Lord has given full vent to his wrath, and he has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled fire in Zion that consumed her foundations. And it goes on. Um, but it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquity of her priests who shed within her the blood of the righteous. And now they grope around the streets like men who are blind. Um, but just going back to verse 10. With their own compassionate, these are moms, they care, compassionate hands, the mother vibe. They were so desperate that they cooked their own children. When was the last time you read that verse? Um, here's, my, here's my point. There's, another, there's an, another side to Scripture that we never talk about. There is another side to Scripture that we never talk about, and it's the side that we don't like to think about. This verse is in Scripture about circumstances so ridiculous that women are cooking their own children for food. Situations beyond our comprehension. You think your life's bad? It's not. Compare, I mean, seriously, it's not compared to what's going on in the third world and, and you know, the, the world today or what we read in Scripture here. So if this is in Scripture, this is a part of reality that has been faced in the past and, and even with the presence of God will be faced again in the future, and can be faced in the present. What I mean by that is simply this. The true view of God that Scripture give a, gives us when we pull in the other side of Scripture that we never read is a Scripture that says God is um, something that can coexist with this kind of ridiculous suffering. That your life could get so bad so ridiculously bad that, that it's better to die than to live. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. That these two, you know, the paradox, Matt talked about, that this paradox can be there. Now, the American version of God is very different. We talk about the promises of God for your life, that if you would just believe Him, everything would be okay. And that if you would just pray more, He would answer all of your prayers and that it's all going to be rosy. 
Your marriage is going to be rosy and your finances are going to be rosy and it's all if you just had more faith or if you just obeyed more, it will all go well with you. And, and we're like, oh, it's a great product. Let me take that product and bring it into my life and, because it'll work. And when it doesn't work, what do we do with the product? It's not useful. So what that betrays is our starting point is a utilitarian starting point. How does this have utility in my life? John Stuart Mill took um, Jeremy Bentham's work and turned it into a viewpoint in the Anglo world back in the 1800s called utilitarianism. And his whole view of reality was, how do you take things based on their utility for your life, pleasure and pain? You need to accept the things that will bring pleasure, work against the things that, that will bring pain, and that's going to lead to the best society because what you're going to do is you're going to choose you know, virtue, you're going to choose these things um, out of self-interest. But what it did is it reduced reality to an individual reality. That the way we should all live is by evaluating the things that have the greatest utility for our own unique individual life and then remove the things that have no utility for our own unique individual life. And so you bring that into the Americas and um, largely influence our culture and then coupled with something called Zen Buddhism, uh, and we need this. Um, we'll do it quick. Um, Zen Buddhism came uh, as a result of a guy from Japan where Zen Buddhism was really big in the late 1800s coming to the World's Fair and there was a symposium on religion. He met a publisher. The publisher says, wow, I'd love to make some money publishing these kind of Zen Buddhist things. Can you send somebody over um, that can kind of be the English translator kind of of what Zen Buddhism is? He went back, sent over a guy by the name of D.T. Suzuki, like the cars, Suzuki. If you go to Barnes & Noble, Borders, anywhere, you go to you know, Eastern religions or things like that, you'll see the name D.T. Suzuki all over the place because he came over early 1900s and began to write Zen Buddhist writings for an American audience. That was picked up by the beatniks. So Jack Kuryak and, and Ginsburg and these guys picked it up and then influenced the hippie generation um, more than anything else with this idea of Zen Buddhism. Now Zen Buddhism is all about the meditation. What it does is it takes out of Buddhism just the core element of meditation where you reach kind of nirvana or, or uh, enlightenment rather by that meditation act, and enlightenment's really what it's all about. So they get rid of the gods, they get rid of the religious side of it, they get rid of the rules, the scriptures, and all it reduces down to is the meditation component. And in that meditation component, you're able to kind of make peace with your reality or affirm that which you already desire to do or are doing. You, you harmonize your own inner states with, with outer states, and you just approve it all in some sense. So Zen Buddhism is a great way of of taking where you're at and saying, I am going to rid myself of guilt and frustration and the desires to do other and other people's ideas and just make it work um, and get at peace with it, okay? Hugely influenced uh, American culture is influencing American culture because half of you right now are like, why should I come to church on Sundays? I mean, it's in the Christian church, this whole idea of utility and even this idea of it should really be religion, spirituality, about me going and harmonizing myself and, and developing this strong view of God that works and, and that there doesn't have all the trappings of submission and authority and church leaders and the ooey-gooeyness of a lot of different people and like the routine and the religious rituals. Like, uh, you know, it'd be so much better if I can just go and, and practice my Christianity by myself, just me and God against the world. And, and that individualism is so rampant that we don't even realize in the other side of Scripture that God says submit to elders. God says congregate together. God says he doesn't want a relationship with just you and him. He wants a relationship with the church. And, and under the covenants, it's groups of people that are his family, and he wants us all together. Does that, I mean, make sense? It's a long sidetrack, but bringing it back here... Um, we have this view of God that, that he's a product that's going to do certain things for us. There's only literally, depending on how, how you count them, five or six covenants in Scripture. Four of those are unconditional, which means God's going to do them no matter what. 
And then a couple of them are conditional, which means if you follow, then God will, kind of a thing. But these are like, depending on how you count it, six covenants that promises that God will uphold no matter what. And precious few of those have an individual component to them. So our view of God is a God that's so big that says, I will do these massive, big picture things with my people, but that's also consistent with the potential for suffering like this. And yet I still ask you to follow me because I am real. And we get confronted with, do I take the American version of God or do I take God's version of God? American version just doesn't seem to work. God's version all of a sudden goes, wow, it's radically not about me. And that's why you see, I think, revival in other countries because their starting point, having been in communism like in China, they want to have a God that is God that's not about them. They're crying out because they've been oppressed, because they've been abused, because they've been the victims of injustice. They're saying, God will take you how you are. You don't have to be fashionable to my life. It, it doesn't have to make me popular. I don't have to go to the cool church or do the cool Christian things or use the cool Christian language so that I look fashionable. I'll just take you as you are and I will do anything. So we sang a song before we kind of got into announcements. It says, I see a, I see a, a near revival, a revival coming. I don't think there will be any revival in America if it starts from fashion, 20-somethings going, ooh, it'd be really cool if we were at the head of the movement. It'd be really cool if, if like, all this energy was going on and, and people were looking at us, like, riding this wave. You look at the revivals throughout Scripture, you look at the revivals throughout history, um, the guys that started that, you don't want what God said to them. When God showed up and, and said, okay, I'm going to use you, you don't want what God said to them because it was a call to suffer. And we have to get rid of this idea that God's going to make life better um, and it's about me, utility, and, and realize that God is real and my life belongs to him and this is just a warm-up act for heaven. And if God comes to me, it's a call to suffer, but it's okay because I'd rather have God than fashion or comfort. Um, and that's the tension there. Does that make sense? Um, I think we've got time for one or two more. Um, it's going by too quick. <laughs> Go for it. Hey, thanks. Um, my name's Ryan. I've been this thing's too low. I've been kind of struggling with this one for a little while. Um, Adam's sin was powerful enough to um, kind of have every single person, whether they want to or not, be born into a sinful nature. Um, and I'm curious, why is Jesus' blood only able to cover those who accept him? How much more I feel like it should be able to cover anybody, um, whether they want it or not, or need it or not, or care about it or not. Um, so I guess the question is, is Adam's sin more powerful than Jesus' death? Uh, answer is no, it's not. And I think that we, we create this confusion by being too addicted to formulas. Um, so again, with hyper-evangelism and proselytizing, we got so fond of saying you can only be saved if your mouth says these words. If you ask for salvation and know what that means, only those people can be saved. And then it creates this real tension. Um, in philosophy, what you do is you, there's a, it's called argument ad absurdum. You, you take something to the absurd and then you realize that it, it doesn't really work. Um, so what about infants that die at age one? What about mentally handicapped people that don't have the cognitive ability to grasp Jesus or grasp salvation or grasp any kind of saying a prayer and, and inviting that in? Um, because they die at age one or because they're mentally retarded, like they lose out. And I think anyone that's a Christian knows that's ridiculous. Um, so obviously God is, has the ability and, the, and can, if he so chooses, save people that don't have a cognitive understanding of Christ. Even in the Old Testament, they didn't have a cognitive understanding of Christ. They, they knew that God was a God who delivers and God was a God who saves. But even like the day before Jesus dies, his disciples are still lost as to what the whole meaning is. So the whole Old Testament is an example of salvation um, because God's doing something. 
not because they necessarily understand exactly what God's doing. So our formulas create a tension. What we have to understand is that God is the agent of salvation, and Jesus is the means of salvation. So when, when the New Testament talks about salvation, it's God saves people because of the blood of Jesus, period. So if you picture uh, a shipwreck and you've got a bunch of shipwreck victims, if, if God throws the life ring out and it says Jesus on it, and people, there's people that swim to it, grab hold of it, um, understand it, and, and get p- pulled out, but God also has the ability, if he so chooses, with Jesus Christ, to throw out some, to somebody that's unconscious, uh, mentally handicapped, etc., and fish them out of the water. Now, if you get to heaven and you say, hey, how did you get saved? That person's answer would be, by the blood of Jesus Christ, because of God. Um, and so what, what the New Testament teaches us is that Jesus' death is what atones and allows God to save people. God desires that they would come to full knowledge of Christ uh, and be able to embrace that, partly because of the life they'd be able to live and the, the gospel that they'd be able to partake in. But certainly... Um, with the counterexamples of, of mental, mental retardation and, and one-year-olds and things like that, we can understand that God, through Jesus Christ, can save people like that. So I think the, the rigid part that you were talking about is Jesus' death not bigger than, than Adam's fall is because our formula was, was very rigid and it was designed to be adamant and create a sense of urgency. Um, instead of I love you, walk alongside with me, it's... Um, I love you, you're damned to hell, you better say these words, you know, and if you don't, you know, you're, you're hosed. And, I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, I, I'm going way over the top, so please forgive me if I'm, I'm not trying to paint it like everyone that's lived the last 50 years that's evangelized is a bad person. But what I'm saying is we've definitely had, there's a generalization that I think we all understand that we can bring to the table, and generalizations are just that, okay? And, and in a culture where Christianity was the dominant thing, we got lazy in how we approached sharing and we did it not starting from where the person is like like uh, Paul did at Mars Hill I mean he backed his truck all the way up to the trailer tried to hitch it up and then drive away so that the people would follow we got lazy being the dominant kind of thing in American culture we'd get within 10 feet holler at people and then drive away and if they didn't follow it's like that's your fault you know and we really have to understand that if we care about the people, our tone, our rhetoric, how we do it, how cut and dry we make it, how relational are we, we're trying to get all the way up under that hitch and, and get them to connect with us so that they can follow when we begin to lead. Um, and, and we kind of bear that responsibility. So I think the formula has kind of created a lot of those mental tensions. Does that make sense? And... Um, and again, I'll just reaffirm, lest you guys misunderstand me. If someone's saved, they're saved by the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Um, God chooses to save people through Jesus Christ, and his number one means of doing that is that they would hear. Paul says, if they don't hear, how can they respond? Um, so I'm not being soft on that at all. So, uh, One last question, and then uh, I might have just a quick parting thought, and I'd love to we'll figure out how to continue this some other way. Uh, my name is Mike. It's on now. Uh, in Matthew, when Jesus says that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains, and it just seems like even like in his time and the disciples, they were doing all these crazy miracles. So I guess my question is, uh, do you think that um, God is just working in different ways in this time, or do you think that maybe faith uh, sort of has been watered down through the generations and we just don't have maybe an understanding, like we say faith all the time, and we use that, and we talk about having faith, but, you know, it's not like Lazarus is coming forth like you talked about, you know. Yeah, it, your first verse there, um, faith as small as mustard seed, you can move mountains, it's hyperbole. Um, Jesus' point there was you can do the grandest of things with, you know, the smallest of things can accomplish the grandest of things. And so, you know, Jesus was setting up a hyperbole that basically says, look, you need to grab faith. Even if, if you got an ounce of it, you need to grab hold of it, latch onto it, have it. Um, because that is, is more valuable than anything else. That's really, that, that, that little thin thread with your relationship with God is where everything's going to kind of come through. Does that make sense? Um, and you certainly saw a lot of miracles. 
And so the question, I think, is more to the point of, were miracles only for then or are they for now as well? Um, I, I'd simply offer two things. One, I think we're usually on either end of this question, and the truth is in the middle, like, there are no miracles, I'm a skeptic, um, or, you know, like, you see a miracle under every rock, you know, kind of a thing, or every day, ooh, 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 that's probably a miracle. And the truth, I mean, by definition, miracle means rare. It's a suspension of natural law where supernatural comes in and does something that doesn't make sense according to natural law. Um, by definition, it's ridiculously rare. And so I think that, you know, we ought to be o always open to it, but we, we shouldn't go, oh, there are such things as miracles, and then the next thing we're doing is we're running around expecting to see them everywhere. Um, we need to, miracles are just that, they're miracles. So I think we need to be open to them. I think on the frontier of Christianity, where God is at work, um, the Holy Spirit does things that you don't necessarily see elsewhere. So missions and the frontier there, you know, you always hear more stories of the Spirit kind of doing some amazing things. Uh, also, you know, I had a professor one time that had a student in philosophy that moved back to a different country and was telling him, like, there's some pretty crazy things we see over here. And, and this is an, a Western guy trained in philosophy and all that, so there's a degree of credibility. And, and, and the professor was like, well, why do you think that is? And, and he simply said, well, we don't have 911. Um, you know, and his logic was simply like, there's an urgency to our prayer and also a necessity to our life circumstances that doesn't exist for you guys. Um, and so there's a whole different reality that we're living over here, kind of on the frontier in the third world, kind of stuff like that. Does that make sense? Um, so with that, I'm just going to share one last thought, and then the band's going to come up and take it home. I, I really wanted to bring out, I think, one of the biggest problems we have with this package view of God that we've, we've inherited, kind of very American, is it's, it's designed to fit well with our linear system of time. And Americans have a linear system of time. It moves this way. And it's kind of like red light, green light. You know, remember like red light, oh, I got to go back. Start over. And it's like, bummer. Like I got nabbed. And then you kind of start over. And this works out in our life of faith. It's like we're walking this way and all of a sudden it's like, ah, oh, bankruptcy, foreclosure, or I lost my investments, or whatever happened. Somebody hates me. And you go backwards and it's like, I got to start over. Well, wait a second, God. I was here and I was obeying you and I was loving you and I was going to church every week. How in the world do I, do I all of a sudden go back to the beginning? That's illogical and it doesn't fit with the fact that you're supposed to keep things going and growing better and better. And it doesn't make sense. And so we have a real hard time. And when this happens and we get that disappointment with God, we really begin to question stuff. I mean, question church, question organized religion, question God, question the Bible. And what we're really questioning is the view of God we have, not the God, I think, that involves the other side of scriptures. The Hebrews didn't have the same kind of problem. And I think it's why, even in the midst of the most horrendous of things, they were still turning it to God. Because their view of time was cyclical. And what that meant was you had time when you planted, and then it goes to a next season where you kind of nurture, and then it goes to the next season where you reap, and then it goes... To, and, and time kind of goes seasonally in a circle. And so there's no going backwards. It's still going forwards. It's just a different season that involves different things, and it might even be the discipline of God. And they accept that as even coming from God. Um, and they don't have to justify God. They just wrestle with it where we say, God, you, you better have an answer or I'm just going to walk away. You have to justify yourself why I would go backwards. They would say, geez, God, please explain why this season, but it's, it's a different kind of wrestling because they have a cyclical view of time. It's not going backwards. And so I just wanted to read Ecclesiastes, and then we're going to take the offering. Um, but here's kind of how it works itself out. If you have a Bible, just turn to Ecclesiastes. And this is a pretty famous passage right here in the middle. But in Ecclesiastes, we see how their view of time just works so different. And I think it, it's an accurate view of time, and it's one that solves some of these problems that we, we kind of come up with. And it's in uh, chapter 3. And so this is just kind of the closing thing, and then we'll uh, have the offertory. But chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes says this, There's a time for everything, and a season for every activity under, under heaven. There's a time to be born... And, and guess what? There's also a time to die. 
time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. There's this strange reality that as time moves forward with the real God involved who makes covenants with his people and is a God of love, that there will be these realities that cycle through and that we should expect those in our lives and that even though we don't always experience comfort, God is more interested in building our character, developing a relationship with us and ultimately bringing us home to live with him in eternity and that that's what we can expect and we can always bank on that it's not the same view as the American God, but it's very real and we can submit to it and it's bigger than us, not something that we've kind of man-made or fashioned in our own image. And so I think we've got to begin to rethink, especially in these times we're going through now, that time is not linear and things aren't always going to get better um, and that the view of God we've inherited in kind of sometimes this evangelical tradition is not the, the God that Scripture gives us. It's the God that we've kind of, kind of made. So um, with that, amen.